if you go and grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Judges, book of Judges, we'll read a few verses here, then we'll pray and have a song, preach and sing, and then we'll have the sermon. Judges chapter number two, if you'll stand with me as we read the word of the Lord. Judges chapter number two, we'll begin reading in verse number 11, we'll read down to verse number 19. Judges chapter number two beginning in verse number 11. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he delivered them into the hands of the spoilers that spoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about, so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. As the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges. But they went a-whoring after other gods, and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge, and delivered them out of the land of their enemies, all the days of the judge, for repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. And it came to pass, when the judge was dead, that they returned, and corrupted themselves more than their fathers, in following other gods to serve them, and to bow down unto them. They ceased not from their own doings, nor from their stubborn way. Let's pray. And then we'll have a song. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the Anchor Baptist Church that you have blessed us with, Lord. Thank you for this evening service. Thank you for bringing us safely here. I pray to use me at this time, Lord, speak through me. I pray that everything is done and said is an honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I think of how he came so far from glory, came to dwell among the lowly, such as I, to suffer shame and suffer disgrace on Mount Calvary take my place and I ask myself this question who am I who am I that a king would bleed and die 
When I'm reminded of his words, I'll leave thee never. Come to me and I'll give to you life forever. I wonder what I could have done to deserve God's only son to fight my battles till they're won for who am I? Who King would bleed and die for. Who am I that he would pray? Not my will, thine Lord. The answer I may never know. that to an old rugged cross he would go for who am I? Who am I that a king would lead and die for? Who Not my will, thine, Lord. The answer I may never know. Why he ever loved me so that to an old rugged cross he would go for who am I? To an old rugged cross, he would go for who am I?
just want to say once again, thank you, Pastor Bell. I, I do not take it lightly uh, that you allow me to preach uh, in your pulpit. Um, it's an honor and a privilege to do so. In the book of Judges, uh, we see here, obviously, this is talking about the nation of Israel. Now, uh, in this time, the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, uh, as we read, uh, they were going crazy. They were running amok. They were, as the Bible says, they were whoring after other gods. They, they could not, it seemed that they could not control themselves. They just were off the deep end and were going further and further away. They were doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Flippantly, they didn't care. That There was no restraint. There was no uh, things holding them back. They were letting themselves be free and do whatever their heart desired. In fact, at the end of the book of Judges, the Bible says that every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's the culmination of what happened. This was the theme of the book of Judges. In fact, the theme of the book of Judges is a cycle. Now, you can get very detailed in the cycle, uh, but if you really boil the cycle down to its most simplest parts, you can find it in really in four parts where the cycle really comes down to. The people sin, the people become enslaved, the people submit themselves to God, and the people have salvation through God from a judge. And then they do it all over again. This is the entirety of the book of Judges. In fact, it happens at least seven times distinctly where the, the, the tone changes, where it talks about, and the land had rest for this many years. And the very next chapter will say, and the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. There's at least seven times that this exact same cycle goes through. Over 12 different judges. The 12 different leaders and judges that we see here, first off is Othniel. He was the first one, the younger brother of Caleb. Then Ehud. The, the guy that stabbed Eglon and lost the knife inside of his fat. Uh, and then we have Shamgar. And then we have Deborah and Barak. And then we have Gideon, who we learned about in Sunday School today, for those old ones. Or we learned about Samson. Uh, Tola. And then J.R. Then Jephthah. Ibzan. Elon. Abdon. And then Samson. We see these 12 leaders, and about seven times, at least seven times, we see this exact cycle of the people that evil in the sight of the Lord that begin to sin. And then God allows oppression. God allows them to become slaves to some enemy of them. And then the people repent, and they submit themselves to God, and they cry out to God because of the vexing that God has allowed to come upon them. And then God says, I will raise up a judge to deliver my people. Over and over again, this cycle goes through the book of Judges, time and time again. In fact, in verse number 19, the Bible gets a little bit more descriptive about it. It says, and it came to pass when the judge was dead, that they returned, and this is a very important phrase, and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to, bow to them, uh, and to bow down unto them, they cease not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. When I, when I think of Israel in this, in this time period, with this cycle that they're going through, with this cycle they're beginning to go through over and over and over again, and I read verse number 19, especially that last phrase, nor from their stubborn way, I cannot help but think of the correlation of the nation of Israel and our own country today. I mean, that, that is where we are at. I mean, you, you, even you look at the history of America, you see 
this very similar cycle because this is the same cycle for all mankind. We see even in the beginnings of America, right before the war for independence, a couple years before that, God allowed the Great Awakening, an amazing revival to come to the country to help the people come back to God because God knew there's a, there's a time coming. And then before the Civil War, there was a second Great Awakening. And there's time and time again where things happen and God provides. And things happen and God provides. And I, I, I can't help to think but of what things were caused because of the sins that we went through. I think specifically of, of you know, uh, World War I, World War II. Okay, after World War I, uh, you have the Roaring Twenties. Uh, sounds great, sounds wonderful. It was a time of lewdness and wickedness and fulfilling your own lust. And, oh, and guess what happens the very next 10 years? Uh, oh, the Great Depression. And then right on the coattails of that, World War II. We, we see these things that are happening, and it happens, and it happens, and it happens, just like a train going down the track over and over and over again. And we see this so much in Judges 2.19, more than their fathers, more than their fathers. Their fathers went to this place, but we're going to go over here. Oh, well, they went to here, but we're going to go over here. Well, there's a major problem with that. You're getting worse and worse. Eventually, you're going to come to a place that you can't come back from. It's going to go too far. When I look at these two nations, this is by far the most similar fact. Every time we look at our nation when it was founded, I mean... The main, one of the main reasons why this country was, well, not this country, but people came to the new world was for religious freedom. That was one of the major driving factors for people going to the new world was they desired to have religious freedom. And then you look at the world we live in today, the America that we have today, it's a far cry from people trying to go to find a place of religious freedom, a place they can go to serve God the way they believe the Bible teaches. It just, it's so far removed, and the reason being is because more than their fathers. See, the corruption that their fathers had is more, because the next generation, the next group, took it a, a step further. We already talked about the Roaring Twenties. The nation prospered, but wickedness crept in, and then God brought judgment, and then the people had to come back to the Lord. And the cycle goes over and over and over again. The cycle is alive and well. Even though we see it plainly laid out here in the book of Judges thousands of years ago, the cycle still is alive and well. It still is just going, chugging right along over and over and over again. Obviously, the cycle is alive and well and it keep on going and it will keep on going primarily and obviously because of man's sin nature. As long as we breathe, as long as there is blood in our veins, our heart pumps, we are sinners. Until we get our glorified bodies, we are susceptible to sin, and therefore we will fall, we will fail, as long as we live. And so therefore the cycle will keep on going. But even more importantly, and even a better part of it, if there's a good part of it, we can find in 2 Peter chapter 3, 19, if, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, if you would flip there. 2 Peter chapter number 3, 
in verse number 9. Yes, the cycle goes on because of man's sin nature. Because of Judges 2.19, more than their fathers. But in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we see really why the cycle can go on. Because we see here in 2 Peter chapter number 3 and verse number 9, the Bible says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some, mount count, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, the, the, the major crux of the cycle is the fact of God brings salvation. See, God has every right to when we sin and we get enslaved because he allows it to happen, we submit back to him just to leave us where we're at. You put yourself in that way, yeah, I'm glad you came back and you're submitting, but you, you gave this to yourself. But that's not who God is. See, the Bible says and the Bible teaches that God is not willing that any should perish. See, the only reason why the cycle can be alive and well is, yes, because we are a sinful nature, a sinful people. But even better than that is because God says, I'll take you back. God says, my hand isn't shortened. God says, my forgiveness isn't running low. My long suffering is not dried out. If you can say, I want you back, God says, I'll take you back. God's legs are not old and feeble. The prodigal come home, the Lord is still going to run to meet him when he sees him on the horizon. The cycle is alive and well because God isn't willing to allow anyone to perish. God says, you submit to me, I'll bring you back. I will save you. Even though you're only in that situation because of your own doing. Because of your own choices, that is the only reason why you're enslaved to your sin and to your enemies. But God says, I'm not willing to let you go. If you're willing to come back, I'm willing to save. I'm willing to bring you back. That should be an overwhelming fascination that should never grow old to an individual that no matter how far no matter how many times God says you come back I'll take you home no matter how many times Israel we go through this even though even though the generation is getting worse even though they're pushing it further you come back God says I'll take you I'll take you back as long as you come back. I won't lock the door on you. Even though you're starting the cycle again, even though it was your own choice, God says, I'll open the door back to you. You just come back and I'll take you home. This should be overwhelming. This should never get old to the Christian. But more importantly, this should help the Christian look at their sin and look at their life in more disgust than ever before. I can understand how the Apostle Paul looks at himself, one of the greatest Christians to ever live, and says, oh, wretched man that I am. And says, I am the chiefest among sinners, among sinners whom I am chief. You can understand, you can feel how the Apostle Paul says because he understands. That, that, that I would do, I don't. That I wouldn't do, that's what I do. 
And you can see as this great man of God struggles with this because he understands how good God is and how wicked he is. But God still says, I'll take you back. Even though you fail, even though you don't do what I want all the time, even though you sin, I'll take you back. I'm not done forgiving yet. My arms are open. I'm ready to bring you back. Out of anything, that should be a major factor in helping one to overcome their sin. Looking at yourself and saying, God still takes me back. I I can't do it anymore. I just can't because God loves me so much. I can't do it to someone that loves me so much. I can't do it. It would just be like you stabbing your best friend in the back. And if you're saved, remember, the Holy Spirit's inside of you. So any wickedness and sin you do, you're dragging him along with you everywhere you go. And God himself still says, you come back. The door's wide open. With all that being said, when I read the book of Judges, I have this one question that that, that, that comes to mind. Obviously, we talked about the cycle, and there was at least seven times the cycle happened. But you notice there was at least seven times, but there were 12 leaders. My main question, when I look at that and I think about that is, why didn't it happen every time? Why were there only some times, now it was the majority, but why were there only some times that the cycle happened? Because I don't know about you, but I'd rather stop the cycle. Now, we've already established you can't break the cycle, you can't destroy the cycle. As long as we live and breathe, the cycle will go on. But I can fight, and I can do my best to postpone and push that cycle off as long as possible. And when I read the book of Judges, I wonder what happened in those few times. From Tola to Jair, and after Jephthah, they had four judges in a row. That the Bible doesn't say, after the judge died, the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. From Jephthah all the way to Samson, Samson is when they did evil again. Those set of judges, they did not do evil in the sight of the Lord. So I can't help but wonder and think, what, what What? happened? Why didn't it happen every time? How did they stop the cycle? How were they able to hold the cycle off? Obviously, it happened again, but how were they able to push it off for a while? How were they able to hold it off for the time being? What did they do? What is their secret? Well, first off, I think we need to understand why the cycle began. So let's look back in Judges chapter number 2. Let's look at, uh, read verses 6 through 10. When did the cycle begin? What is the main cause for the cycle beginning? In Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse number 6, Judges 2, verse number 6, the Bible says, And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man into his inheritance to possess the land. So Joshua's at the end of his life. He's made his last final 
charge to the people, and he's saying, all right, we're all going to our own possessions, and uh, that's pretty much the end of Joshua's life. In verse number seven, the Bible says, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath Heres, in the Mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill. Gosh. In verse number 10. And also, all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And in the very next verse we see, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. The cycle begins when there arises a generation who who knows not the Lord. That is when the cycle begins. You see, because once the judge comes in, you can read, 40 years the land had rest. I think the longest one was after Ehud. The Bible said four score years for one judge. That's 80 years. That's a long time. But the cycle begins when there arises a generation which knew not the Lord. The generations were getting worse and worse and falling to begin, uh, falling to sin because they knew not the Lord. Or you could say they did not have, they did not possess what the previous generation possessed because we also see in there, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. They didn't have that same possession that the other ones did. You see, because the ones that followed Joshua, they had seen a lot. They were, they had also, most of them had been under Moses in the 40 years in the wilderness while they were waiting for the previous generation to die off because of their sin and their wickedness. They had seen that happen. They had seen the Lord deliver. They had seen the mighty works that God had done when they came into Canaan land to take over and the battles they won, and the things the Lord did for them. But this next generation knew not the Lord. See, we're losing the battle. That is why the cycle continues, and is rapidly, horrifically getting worse, because we're losing the battle. And every time we lose the battle, the next generation goes a step further. Every time we lose the battle, the next generation goes a little further. See, we're a far cry from what we used to be. Because when we lose the battle, the next generation goes further into the wickedness, further in to their sin. We're losing the battle for the next generation. You know, it's sad. You know, in the bus ministry, it would be a very rare occasion for a child to come in the bus ministry and to make it all the way through elementary, high school, all the way to adulthood, and to remain in church. It's true. My, my, my mom and dad were on the bus ministry as long as I can remember. Not longer than I can, because more than I've been alive. I know of two, maybe three, from their time in the bus ministry, of kids they had, that they saw saved, that they brought on the bus, that stuck to it and are still serving the Lord today. It's a rare occurrence 
because the turnover rate, because the circumstances in which they live, the world's influence upon them, it's just a turnover rate. But the saddest thing of all is that our churches are turning into the bus ministry. It's becoming more likely for a child in a Christian home to become an adult in a Christian church than for them to leave and do their own thing. After graduation, they're more likely to go out into the world do their own thing than to stay in church. Why? We're losing the battle. The churches are becoming more like the bus ministry. It should be the other way around. The bus ministry should be becoming more like the church where there is more fruit that remains, but it's going the opposite direction. No wonder our nation is in the way that it's in. We can't even keep our own children, let alone the children of the world. What, what do we expect? It's good, it's great to bring people from, in the, from, from the world into the church, but if we can't even keep our own children, what's going to happen when they have children? If this does not bother you, something is wrong. There is a major problem. If you do not, if this does not irk you and tear away at your heart, knowing there's a high probability they won't be back, they won't be back. The cycle remains and continues to worsen because of the apathy about those who follow after us. See, the Apostle Paul understood it. The Apostle Paul, everywhere he went, he was making sure he was getting the next guy ready. We, 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 we equated to, who's your Timothy? See, the Apostle Paul understood it. In all of his letters, he, t- he references these names. Oh, and this person's going to do this, and this person's going to do that. These are all people that Paul personally works with, and Paul's personally trained to make sure, when I'm gone, I want you to make sure everything is taken care of here. I want you to do this for me. He was worried about those that came after him. In chapel a few weeks ago, I preached on the dangers of the second generation Christian. I am one. I am well acquainted with a lot of the dangers and pitfalls of the second generation Christian. It is what God intends. A good Christian family rearing Christian children in church to love the Lord. But because we live in a sin-cursed world, there are pitfalls. There are dangers, and once again, they're becoming bigger and bigger as we get further away because each generation we're losing so it's getting worse. Each generation we're losing so it's getting worse. So these pitfalls, these dangers are getting bigger and that's why our ability to retain our own children is plummeting. We're losing the battle. We looked at two of them in chapel but I have another one today. I want to look at these because in order to win the battle we have to understand What is the battle? Where are we losing at? Because if we can't keep our own children, it's a losing battle. If we can't keep those who are in our own families, it's a losing battle. If we can't keep our own second generation Christians, it's a losing battle. It's a constantly losing warfare. So we need to learn, even if you are not a second generation Christian, 
there should be second generation Christians that follow after you. Whether they're your children or there are those that you personally win and lead to the Lord Jesus Christ, those are those that you can help and you can teach and you can train. So the second generation Christian. The first one that I think of that comes to mind to me of a prime example of a pitfall and a danger of the second generation Christian we find in 1 Samuel chapter number 2. Let's go ahead and flip there. 1 Samuel chapter number 2. 1 Samuel chapter number 2. We'll read in verse number 12. We'll read a couple verses here. 1 Samuel chapter number 2 and verse number 12. Now the sons of Eli were the sons of Belial. Get this. They knew not the Lord. Sons of the high priest knew not the Lord. In verse number 17, wherefore the sin of the young man, let's talk about his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, the sins of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Their wickedness was so great, it was affecting everyone else. Like, I don't even want to go near there, because Eli's sons are just causing many problems. And then it goes on to give in detail some of the things and wickedness that they were doing, some of the wicked acts they were committing. The sons of the high priest knew not the Lord. Well, it's obviously going to be a losing battle for the next generation if the next generation doesn't even know the Lord. They're not even saved. How, how are they supposed to fight the battle and take up the cross if they're not even saved? The sons of the high priest. And, and it's not like Eli was a bad high priest. He trained Samuel. He did a pretty good job. But Hophni and Phinehas wanted nothing to do with it. They knew not the Lord. They were unsaved heathen in the family of the high priest. You know, there was a, uh, right before the Great Awakening, in, especially in the New England countries, there was this thing called the Halfway Covenant. And this is one of the major things that really led Jonathan Edwards to start preaching very harshly and fiercely against these different things and about salvation and getting real about your salvation because the church has become stagnant just like they are today. They were just there to tickle your ears and not make you feel uh, make you feel all warm and fuzzy. But he understood this is wrong. The halfway covenant basically was people weren't coming to church anymore. So they had a great idea. As long as your family member was a member of the church, you're a member. Because they needed the membership. They needed to make sure they get their tithes and offerings. They needed to make sure their membership roles look good. So they had this thing called the halfway covenant. So they literally had members in their church who were unsaved. Because still at this time, the church was very important, even politics and things like that. So you had to be affiliated with different things. Seriously, their churches had members who were literally unsaved and knew it and didn't care. don't we have that today? We may not have the actual verbiage and the thing of a halfway covenant where it's going around the fact, oh, you don't have to be saved, but we're doing the same thing. We're just trying to tickle people's ears and send them home, make them warm and fuzzy. 
No wonder we're losing the battle. Maybe you are truly saved. But you're still acting so wickedly that you, you, you there's no difference between you and the unsaved. There is no difference. There is no distinction. Maybe you truly are saved, but you're just so backslidden. You know you're supposed to go to church, so I'll go to church because I have to go to church. But you could not care less about what actually goes on, about what God wants you to do, about what the Bible says. You couldn't care less. Are you saved? Do those that follow you, are they saved? Or is the example you're laying down teaching them this is how saved people are supposed to act? Or are you saying, I'm saved, but you couldn't tell. Uh, you'd have to get the biggest magnifying glass in the world to find my Christianity. As long as these remain prevalent in our churches, in our homes, and in ourselves, the lack of salvation or the lack of conviction to act like a saved person, the cycle continues. It will not be stopped. It will not be postponed. The cycle continues. As long as... As we still are Hophni and Phineas, the cycle continues. Are you a Hophni and Phineas? <laughs> you go to church, but could I accurately say about you, you don't know the Lord. Could Imagine how horrifically bad that would be to sit in church for years, to have your own Bible and have someone accurately be able to say to you, you don't even know who God is. This is the son's the high priest. So if the son's the high priest can have it, it can happen to you. If the son's the high priest can be this wicked, you can too. The cycle continues. The next one we see here is in Numbers chapter number three. Numbers chapter number three. Numbers three and verse number two. Numbers chapter number three and verse number two. And these are the names of the sons of Aaron, the very first high priest. Nadab, the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And uh, in Exodus 24, one, I'll just read this one. And he said unto Moses, this is the Lord speaking. God said unto Moses, come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. Could you imagine being called out by God himself saying, I want you to come. I want you to come and worship me. With all these other leaders that I have chosen, I want you to come as well. That's a, that's a pretty amazing place of honor to be called out by the Lord himself saying, I want you in this group, with Moses and Aaron and 70 of the elders of Israel, Nadab and Abihu, I want you too. Could you imagine being called out by God himself to come and worship afar off with all these other great men and leaders of Israel? They have the sons of the high priest. They helped in the priestly office. We see that in Exodus 21, uh, 28, 1, talks about the sons of Aaron ministered in the priestly office. They helped Aaron do the job of the high priest. They had their job. They did their uh, portions that they were supposed to do. 
But not only that, they were called by God himself, called out from everyone else. They had two other brothers, but God didn't call them. God called Nadab and Abihu and said, I want you two. I want Moses, I want Aaron, I want you two as well, and I want the 70 elders. I want all of you to come out and to worship me afar off. Could you imagine the honor bestowed by having God himself? I want you. I want you. That would be amazing to have that place of honor. That would be a lifetime achievement. I remember the time God told Moses to come get me so I could go worship with everyone else. I remember that. Sadly, this is not the end of their story. Leviticus chapter number 10. Leviticus chapter number 10 and verse number 1. We'll flip there. Leviticus chapter number 10 and verse number 1. Sons of the high priest, again, the very first high priest, mind you. The very first one who had a very special honor and privilege of being called by God himself, I want you to come out. Come out with my special, honored servants. I want you to be with them. But in Leviticus chapter number 10 and verse number 1, we see, And Nadab and Abihu, just to make sure we understand, the sons of Aaron, no confusion, these are the same ones. The sons of Aaron took either of them, they both did it. It wasn't one, and the other one kind of followed along. Took either of them, they both took it, his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon. Okay, nothing too crazy right now. And offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. How can you have such a fall? To go from the sons of the very first high priest, not only the sons of the very first high priest, but having God himself call you out among everyone else and say, I want you two as well in this group. I want you two as well in this meeting that I'm having over here. To get to the place where you think you can just do whatever you want and do exactly the opposite of what God himself commanded. The Bible clearly says, which he commanded them not. In Numbers uh, 3 verse 4, David Abihu died before the Lord when they offered strange fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. And the verse goes on to say, And Eliezer and Ithamar ministered in the priest's office. Nadab and Abihu had such an honor and privilege. Their life was set. But they thought too much of themselves. I can do what I want. God himself called me. Ah, 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 who cares? You see, Nadab and Abihu's problem wasn't that they weren't saved. I I believe they were. I mean, God himself called them out with everyone else to worship me afar off. But their problem was they lost the fear of God. You see, because in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the Bible says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, God instructed them. You don't bring strange fire before me. Oh, and what did they do? They brought strange fire in their place of being the sons of the high priest. And being in a place specially called out by God, they lost their fear of the Lord. See, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of, of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. 
But the antithesis of the fear of the Lord is being a fool that despises wisdom and despises instruction. See, Nadab and Abihu went from being in a place of honor to a place of dishonor, just like that. Because they decided, ah, who cares? They lost their fear of the Lord. That God, yes, he is a merciful God, but he is a just Lord. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords and should be treated as such. They tried to bring God down to their level, and God said, it's not happening. And killed him. Right then, right there, in the moment. Struck him dead. They had their instructions, but they thought, I, I know better than that. I can do what I want. I'm someone special. I am son of the very first high priest. I was called out by God himself. I can do what I want. You see, they lost their fear of the Lord because they thought too much of themselves. See, Hophni and Phinehas, they didn't even know the Lord. They were so far gone, they weren't even saved. Nadab and Abihu, their beginning was good. They started where they should, but they lost their fear. They lost their trust in God and who God was. They lost their sight, and they lost their relationship with the Lord. See, if their relationship was what it should have been, if they had stayed where they were supposed to in worshiping the Lord, just like Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel, they wouldn't have ever gotten to the place where they would even entertain the idea of going directly against the command of the Lord. They had the problem. See, they had the same problem many Americans have today. You see, we know God. We believe God. But we've gotten so enlightened in our Christianity in our day in life that we don't really believe God. Oh, the Bible says that, yes. Oh, yeah, the Bible says that. Well, the Bible says it. That's done. That should be what it is. But no, in our day and age, we, we love to puff ourselves up because, you know, knowledge puffeth up. Yeah, because that's out of balance. You, you fill your brain up with knowledge, yeah, you're going to be out of balance, and you're going to think you're all that in a bag of chips, and God's going to pop your bag of chips. There you go. <laughs> Nadab and Abihu started to believe their own press, started to believe their own hype. They learned real quick. You see, we've gotten to the place where we're teaching and training those that are following behind us to say things like, oh, do we have to? Oh, we got to because, you know, preacher's going to get mad if we don't. Well, what kind of an example are we setting? No wonder it's getting worse. If this is our Christianity, what do you think theirs is going to be? If our Christianity, the best we can do is, oh, I got to show up, otherwise preacher's going to get mad. <laughs> Let's just shut the doors down because we're just wasting our time. You see, we get into this area and the cycle begins to happen. God sends judgment, and then we go to the Lord screaming, why is this happening? And God's sitting back saying, uh, do, do you want the laundry list? Do you want, what, what do you want here? Why is this happening? Uh, uh, we'll be here a while. 
we know full and well. When we go to God saying, why is this happening? Oh, we know. It's just like a little child when you ask them when they've done something wrong. Did, uh, hey, what did you just do? Um, uh, they know what they did. You know what you did. We know what we did. When we go to God saying, why did this happen? God's saying, you already know. Just like when God came down to Adam and Eve, he asked Adam. Adam, God knew. God already knew. And Adam already knew. But God was trying to see what's our relationship like right now. Are we going to be a, a little child, an elementary student? Um, damn her. Or are we going to say, yeah, I, uh, I messed up. I chose to do something that was wrong. You see, but the Nadabs and Abihu are leaving their footsteps further and further in the wrong direction. The cycle continues because we can't get over ourselves. We just can't get over ourselves. Do we actually fear the Lord? Oh, the Bible says so. Oh, yeah, we fear. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Beginning of knowledge, beginning of wisdom. I fear the Lord. Okay, well, the opposite of fearing the Lord is to be a fool that despises wisdom and instruction. So when the Bible is open and you're told to do something, do you do it? Nadab and Abihu? Or do you have your own way that works a little bit better than that? The losing battle of the next generation. The cycle continues. Who will stop the cycle? Hophni and Phinehas is not going to stop the cycle. Nadab and Abihu is not going to stop the cycle. Lastly, we see in the second generation pitfalls and dangers. One that you probably would never suspect. You probably wouldn't think about it. But honestly, it could be very much the most dangerous. Because you see, the Hophni and Phinehas is... It's obvious, okay? They were so putrid and so disgusting that everyone around them was just abhorred. I don't want anything to do with that. The Nadab and Abihu's, it's pretty obvious. God said this, they're doing that. They may be a little more sneaky at times, but their true colors come to light. But the last one we see here is someone that truly desires to do what's right. They love the Lord. They want to do what's right. But they have a problem. And they have a very crucial error and sin in their life. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter number 34. Deuteronomy chapter number 34. We've seen Hophni and Phinehas. They were just unsaved. Oh, they were so wicked, you couldn't tell if they were saved or not. They were just so far gone. Nadab and Abihu. They lost their fear of the Lord. They had no respect for God. And then in Deuteronomy 34, verse 9, we see our next second generation Christian. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hand upon him, and the children of Israel hearkened unto him, 
and did as the Lord commanded Moses. Joshua? Really, Joshua? The one that took up the mantle from Moses and led the children of Israel into the promised land? Yes. And here is why. Let's go to Joshua, chapter number 7. You see, Joshua, no Hophni and Phinehas there. The Bible clearly said he was full of the Spirit. There was no Nadab and Abihu in Joshua. Joshua was sold out to the Lord. Joshua wanted what was right. But Joshua had a problem in his second generation of Christianity. See, for the past 40 plus years, he had been under Moses. One of the greatest leaders in all of mankind history. Uh, once again, an amazing man of God. And he had been under the direct tutelage and teaching and training of Moses. But we see here in Joshua chapter number 7, verses 1 through 5, the Bible says, But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of uh, Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against the uh, children of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside beth Aven, on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai, and make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but a few. So there went up thither of the people about three thousand men, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai, and the men of Ai smote of them about thirty and six men. For they chased them from before the gate, even unto Shebarim, and smote them into going down. Wherefore, the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Let's head over to Joshua chapter number 9. Joshua chapter number 9. We'll begin reading uh, in verse number 14. And the men took of their victuals, and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them, and made a league with them to let them live, and the prince of the congregation swear unto them. You see, Joshua's problem wasn't that he was a Hophni and Phinehas. Oh, he knew the Lord. His problem wasn't a Nadab and Abihu. He feared the Lord. He respected who God was, and respected the commandment of the Lord. But you see, Joshua's problem wasn't the fact that we see in Proverbs 3, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not into thine own understanding. See, Joshua was as sincere as you can get, but he was sincerely wrong a couple of times. Joshua had to learn, it doesn't matter how simple the situation may be. I always ask counsel of the Lord. AI, that's a simple problem. Two or three thousand men, we don't even need to talk about it. Get it done. The men of Gibeon, oh yeah, we can trust these guys. Look, their clothes are old, their, their shoes are old, their bread's old. They have to be from a far country. It doesn't matter what it seems. It doesn't matter what it looks like. The Christian, the Christian, the person that is like Christ, asks God. The Christian does not lean to their own understanding. The Christian says, I'm going to trust 
in the Lord with all my heart. See, that is where Joshua's problem lay. And this is a pitfall and can be one of the most dangerous pitfalls of the second generation Christian. You are true. You are honest. There is nothing more you want to do than to serve the Lord, but you know so much. Joshua's problem was he knew so much. He had been around Moses so much. He started cutting corners. Oh, yeah, this would be good. Oh, we know the Bible answers. Boom, 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 boom. Oh, we want to serve God. We do. We have a heart for the Lord. But we're forgetting. This is not what we trust in. We don't trust in our own knowledge. We don't trust in our own memory. Even if it's in the Bible, we trust in the Lord with all our heart. You see, because you can take even something like the Bible and use it for something wrong. People do it all the time. The devil used the own Bible. He twisted the words around. It happens all the time. So second generation Christian, Joshua, he had a problem. If it was just a one-off thing, okay. But the very fact that it happened back to back, AI, Gibeah, back to back. Joshua needed to learn. Joshua, you know a lot. You've learned a lot under Moses, Joshua. You have a heart to serve me. But Joshua, you come to me. I am the one you trust in. You don't trust in what you've learned. You don't trust in what you know, Joshua. I will use that when I'm ready. But for now, Joshua, you need to trust in me. I I fear as to how many sincere Christians lead people astray because they're not trusting in the Lord. They're trusting in their own knowledge and understanding. And so they say things out of turn, they do things out of turn, and they scar, hurt, and injure others because they're not trusting in the Lord. They're just, they're sincere. But you can be sincerely wrong. That's what happened with Joshua. He was sincere. Ai. This is the commandment of the Lord. We need to take over and to conquer these nations. He wasn't doing something wrong. He was fulfilling the commandment of the Lord. But it wasn't time. Because there's something else wrong, Joshua. But if you had asked the Lord, you could have saved the trouble. If you'd asked the Lord, Joshua, you would have found out these men were deceiving you. But he's trusting on his own knowledge too much. He loves the Lord. He's not like Nabon having to buy you. He's not out there going directly against the commandment of the Lord. God didn't say, hey, Joshua, don't trust these guys. And he said, I'm trusting these guys. No, his problem was, and ask not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. God was sitting there waiting. He's like, all right, Joshua, come and ask me. I'll let you know. And he watches them strike up a deal. Oh, oh, and then in the very next chapter, they had to go defend them. You know, they wouldn't have had to have done that if they had just asked God in the first place. If they had just talked to God in the first place, they would have found out, oh, these guys are lying. These guys are part of the people we're supposed to destroy because of their wickedness. If we go back to Judges chapter number two. You see, it wasn't just Joshua that had this problem. It was the entire nation of Israel that had this problem. 
they were sincere. We see in, John, in chapter number seven, they served, everyone served the Lord in the days of Joshua and the elders that outlived Joshua and in their entire lifetime, that whole generation served the Lord. But look back in verses one through five. The Bible says, and an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bacchim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land, which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. You can take that because God doesn't lie. And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare unto you. And it came to pass, when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept, and they called the name of the place Bachim, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. You see, the people had the right reaction. When God said, hey, you did wrong, they said, oh, they wept. But that doesn't change the fact you did wrong. They had sincere hearts. They wanted to serve the Lord. They wanted to do what was right. But because they did not fulfill the commandment of the Lord, they left a snare. That's one of the most dangerous things the second generation Christian can come across. It's the snares laid out by the previous generation. Not on purpose, not in malice, but because we just didn't seek counsel from the Lord, we're laying landmines all over the place for the next generation to get blown half up by because we didn't think about what we were doing. Or more accurately, we didn't ask God about what we were doing. In Judges chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, the Bible says, I will, and this is the Lord talking, I will not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died. Joshua, you were sincere, but you were sincerely wrong. God says, I'm not going to drive them out. He could have, but God said, you made this choice. And verse number 22, that through them I may prove Israel. See, God says, I'm going to leave them because I want to see. What is Israel going to do when they have all these things around them? Things they could have gotten rid of, but now they're here. Whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein, as their fathers did, because once God corrected them, their father said, nope, we're doing it. We're doing what's right. Yes, we can't get rid of them because we didn't do it when we were supposed to, but we're going to do what's right. And so God says, they're going to stay. And you're going to have to prove yourself, Israel. Are you going to be like your fathers did with Joshua? They were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. They didn't fulfill the commandment. So now you have to keep yourself strong. Are you going to stay with me? Verse number 23. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out hastily, neither delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. The second generation Christian, sincerely trying to serve the Lord, but you're not, you're not asking counsel of God. 
It doesn't matter how simple the situation is. It doesn't matter how cut and dry the situation may become or seem. God says, trust not, lean not into thine own understanding. God says, do you trust me or do you trust this? What do you trust? This, this may be full of this, but it's still this. It's still under the curse of sin. And last I checked, your name isn't God, and you don't have the authority of God. So lean not under thine own understanding. Joshua was a man of God. He was a leader of God. But he fell short in a few areas. And he left stumbling blocks and landmines for the generation that followed. As long as we do not completely believe and trust in the Lord for even the most simplest thing, the cycle continues. Nadab and Abihu, Hophni and Phinehas, even Joshua's. You're allowing the cycle to continue that Joshua had left. A great man of God. He gave his life to serve the Lord. But he didn't trust in the Lord not when it mattered, not when God said, Joshua, what are you doing? You didn't ask counsel from me, Joshua. I could have helped. Look at our nation. It's it's a wreck, an absolute wreck. We're losing the battle for the next generation. You see, there's a balance when dealing with the next generation. Because it's good and right to help the next generation, to help them along and to lead them in the way. But you see, there's a balance to it. As Brother Plato preached on this morning, suffering, sacrifice, surrender, those are all. You can't have it. You cannot have true power of God if you don't have those. You see, the greatest generation, these were the majority of people uh, that fought in World War II. When they had their children, many of them said, I am going to do everything and anything I can to make my children's life amazing. There's nothing wrong with that. You love your children. You see, but the reasoning behind it was they believed they were the greatest generation despite what they had gone through. But little did they know they were the greatest generation because of what they went through. They had lived as children through World War I. They had lived through the Great Depression. They had fought through World War II. The adversity had brought them to where they should be. See, there's a balance. Yes, we should help those that come behind, but we're not to pamper the way and to make sure no one's going to get hurt. We live in a sin-cursed world. That's impossible. That went out the window when Adam and Eve sinned. The possibility of no one ever getting hurt, that's long gone. A couple centuries too late. Scipio Emilianus. You think you're going to get out here with industry? (laughs) Crazy. He was the last Roman to totally defeat and eviscerate the Carthaginian Empire. One of the biggest threats to the Roman Empire at their quote-unquote infancy. He had his great victory. Pillaged the city, 
burnt it down. This is when they sowed the, sealed, sowed the fields of salt. That was when this supposedly happened. Scipio Emilianus, descendant of Scipio Africanus, the first man to ever defeat Carthage in their own city. He was the general. And his mentor was there with him. And he saw him afar off, looking at the city ablaze. And he saw Scipio crying. And Polybius thought, oh, that's kind of weird. Maybe he's crying for joy. So he went and he asked him, he said, Emilianus, why are you crying? And he told him this, a glorious moment, Polybius, but I have a dread foreboding that someday the same doom will be pronounced on my own country. And then it's said that he quoted from Homer, a day will come when sacred Troy shall perish and Priam and his people shall be slain. For the next 600 years, Rome would be the power of the Mediterranean. And even for another thousand years after that, a portion of the Roman Empire would still be in existence and standing strong be, well, behind their walled cities, but they were still there. That's, that's a pretty long time. That's one of the longest unbroken empires in history. Countries have lived a long time, but they've had constant turnover and constant turnover. This new dynasty, this new dynasty. To have the same basic structure for that time period is almost unheard of. I believe a lot of it has to do with, I think many of the Romans, especially in the early years, shared Emilianus' foresight. I don't want this to happen to my own country. I don't want the cycle church. I don't want the cycle to come into my family. I don't want to see my home, my church burning in the distance as I'm running for my life because the cycle of sin and slavery has ravaged my church and my family and myself. How are we going to stop the cycle? How can we postpone it? Well, we have to get serious. We need to get the foresight that it's real and it's coming. The cycle is around every corner. It's just waiting. It cannot wait for the Christian to fall. And remember, every generation is getting worse and worse. So it's going to take those generations, those judges that went from the next judge to the next judge without the people doing evil in the sight of the Lord. They, they caught on to what they needed to do. They understood we need to make sure our next generation is ready for the battle. And is ready to fight. That's the only way we're going to be able to hand the baton off to the next generation without them going off into craziness and to wickedness. But we can't have Hophni's and Phineas. We can't have Nadab's and Abihu's. And we need to be careful of the pitfalls of Joshua. We want to be Joshua, but be careful. Don't fall in the same foot, in the same pits that he did. A great man, a man that loved the Lord, served the Lord his whole life. But man, he made some really bad mistakes. He left the stumbling blocks and the landmines for the next generation. And the generation after all of them passed, 
tripping over themselves, hitting those things left and right. Who will stop the cycle? Who will stop the cycle? The cycle's coming. It's right outside the door. It's waiting. What are we going to do? Who will stop the cycle? God merely asked for obedience. True obedience does not require an explanation. True obedience doesn't need a reason. God says, do it. Sounds good to me. Understanding can come later on. The cycle continues. Will we push it back? Or will our corruption go even further? The choice is ours.